0: Thompson. Oh, yeah. Kylie O'Miller showing off those shifty skills. Driver driving hard down the alley and he scores. What a goal from Josh Bird. Caleb Trainer Slips and scores.
1: What You're kidding, kidding me? me. By Dylan Ward. Gets topside. Rambo
0: oh, scores. Welcome to Pro Lacrosse Talk. Your go-to podcast for interviews with professional players, coaches, and executives, as well as the latest news and analysis from all three professional lacrosse leagues. Now, here's your host, Hutton Jackson.
2: All right, what's up, Pro Lacrosse fans? Welcome to another edition of Pro Lacrosse Talk presented by Fanatics. Reminder, if you're especially a Mammoth fan uh, and you haven't gotten your Colorado Mammoth championship gear, you guys can get that on the official NLL shop. Go to slash NLL shop. You guys can give us a slight kickback if you buy anything using that link. So be sure to use that. But I'm your host, Sutton Jackson. Today I'm joined by PLT contributors Brian Andrews and Topher Adams. Uh, Appreciate you guys hopping on. We had a week off last week. Lots to talk about this week, though. We're going to preview the PLL All Star game. We're going to talk a little NLL expansion draft recap after we previewed it last week. Um, And we're going to talk a little bit of PLL week five, even though, you know, we're two weeks from that. We had a little off week. Uh, this past weekend, um, but we'll get some all-star game stuff discussed. And then uh, we're back at PLL week six coming up soon as well. Um, but to start, we're not going to talk about either the NLL or the PLL. We're going to talk about a new professional lacrosse league, one that uh, you know kind of came out of nowhere and really doesn't have much semblance of anything to start just yet, but it's the Professional Box Lacrosse Association. They announced their targeting uh, December start date, and it uh, looks to be competing directly with the NLL, as another professional box lacrosse association. i um, not sure how it's going to really fare. You know, unlike the PLL-MLL situation where the MLL obviously had a lot of issues and there was rumblings kind of leading up to it. You also had Paul Rabel, you know, arguably the biggest name in the sport at the time, with a bunch of the top players going over to the PLL. This is a little bit more interesting. Um, you know, the, the league doesn't have any big names tied to it. No teams. They're going to announce locations sooner than apparently let fans pick the names of the, the uh, teams when the cities were revealed, so very, very interesting uh, model. We're definitely going to keep monitoring this. Um, I will say one thing that is interesting is the NLO is currently uh, you know in the lapse of a CBA. They need a new CBA. They opted out of their final year of their, their deal this past uh, negotiation period, so they do need a new collective bargaining agreement uh, between the NLO, the NLPA and the NLO is still yet to announce a new commissioner. So I don't think the NLO is going anywhere. It's just finished up its 35th year, guys. I wouldn't be too worried about the NLO. I'm sure things will get going pretty soon. We have free agency coming up August 1st. Um, but it is an interesting time. You know, if there was a good time to launch a competing league against the NLO, it's probably no time, but the second best would probably be uh, right now. So i um, not sure how this is going to fare, but we'll, we'll continue to monitor it. I'll just go with each of you, uh, your thoughts on the professional box lacrosse association um, just from what you've seen so far, and do you think you know it will make any waves in the professional box across the scene? I'll start with you, Brian.
0: Yeah, I feel like I could outline my feelings as mostly just kind of confused. Uh, I feel like it kind of came out of nowhere. The start date is like very soon. I don't even think they have a – the last time I checked, they didn't even have a Twitter account for this league yet. The marketing materials look very scrapped together. It's very unclear. They say they're going to announce cities, but I, like I'm skeptical about where they're going to play. Like where they're even going to play. Where are they exactly sourcing players from? There's some uh, confusing press releases about bringing that quote saying, uh, you know, bringing American players back to make this a really competitive league. Very unclear what that means. I think that was in Business Wire. Maybe we'll put it in like the show notes. I'll, I'll send I'll send Hutton you the link to that uh but very confusing all around i'm excited but like you said Hudton, mostly i'm i'm confused because there's not really a huge need for this especially since we already see players kind of not like internally well yeah maybe internally conflicted about playing for the P L L versus the M S L like it feels like there's already so many leagues floating around and with so many of the bigger leagues getting production broadcast deals even the M S L has announced a smaller Uh, broadcast deal it feels like the the amount of market share that a new league can capture is very small currently so it's a lot of unanswered questions and their timeline is really short so i'm i really don't know what to think and i'm kind of excited to see how it goes because alternate or competing big professional sports leagues have been very popular recently and very few of them have gone that well so I'm, i'm very excited to see where this ends up going
2: you know, absolutely. It's interesting, too, that it's actually going to be um, ran by former NLL commissioner John Lizzie, uh Jr. and then former Rochester Nighthawks owner Steve Donner. So it is some former NLL people kind of breaking away. Um, but I agree with you, Brian. And, you know, the thing with the PLO-MLO is, you know, we saw pretty much a good com- competition between both of them, given the fact that it's a pretty healthy split player-wise. The PLL probably had a little bit better players um, when they split. Um Completely different business models in terms of, you know, MLL was not single entity at the time of the split and went to single entity kind of following suit. Obviously, PLL has always been single entity. PLL is touring based, MLL is city based. So, a lot of differences. This one's kind of setting it up to be like just another NLL, but NLL light. And, you know, I will be curious to see what cities they go to, but with the focus on the United States, um, I don't think it's a bad idea. But we've seen how popular the game is in Canada, you know, like the the Canadian markets. All of them have been very, very successful. In terms of the United States, uh, you look at the NLL, there's still some markets that are really struggling. Um, and I think they're starting to get their footing. But um, the focus specifically on the U.S. market, I don't know if it's the timing's right for that right now. And then, like you said, it was kind of a head-scratcher the way they were talking about players. But, yeah, definitely certainly looking forward to seeing um, you know what comes of it. I know, Topher, what are your thoughts when you heard that this uh, new league was getting started?
1: yeah I mean a lot like uh Brian you said it's just kind of confusing. I don't really see a point honestly of starting trying to start another professional box league um we have the n l l and it seems to be improving its professionalism you know you mentioned it has the e s p n plus and t s n uh streaming package now um you know, there seems to be more money invested in it, especially with the wave of expansion over the past few seasons. So this isn't like the MLL was when the PLL split, where it was still very kind of strung together, not as well funded or professional. The MLL is on an upward trajectory on all those fronts. So it doesn't seem like there's like a weakness, like a huge weakness to try and attack. And, you know, as Brian mentioned, it's not like what we're seeing from this new leagues marketing materials or anything like that is extremely, it's not wowing anybody with its, you know, presentation or its professionalism. So I'm very skeptical, but you know, if this means more guys get to play lacrosse more often and we get to see more professional lacrosse games somewhere on the internet or on TV, then I'm fine with that.
2: Yeah, no, that's the right attitude to have, you know, like it's never a bad thing to have more lacrosse, but, uh, yeah, like you, I'm a little, you know, skeptical just because there's no really huge names attached to it. Obviously, we mentioned the two guys that are former NLL guys, but it's not like you know we just saw a Las Vegas team add Wayne Gretzky as an owner for the NLL. You know that that's some really positive backing, and you look at even the PLL, Joe Tsai, um, not only investing in you know two NLL teams but the PLL as well. That was a big name associated with it so haven't really seen that maybe we will be surprised maybe there is some big names kind of working behind the scenes to get this off the ground but uh currently that's all we really know about it and all we can really talk about it but uh definitely curious to see what comes of it for sure um but in terms of the established professional box lacrosse league the nll um we had a great expansion draft, guys, a, a lot of twists and turns, a lot of them that we kind of saw coming in you know, a little bit of a way, you know, in terms of kind of fields getting drafted and traded. Um, we had talked to Brett McIntyre potentially getting drafted and traded back to the Mammoth, which happened, um, you know, but it was very still hard to predict. And uh, a lot of these moves set up Vegas, not only, you know, for their inaugural season, but I think for the future, a lot of young guys were taken. Um, surprisingly, not really any big stars, but then again, you know, when the expansion draft happens, a lot of those big stars are off the table because they're protected. So not too big of a shocker, but um, I really liked a lot of the Las Vegas moves. I thought the Connor Fields trade was a great win-win for both Rochester and Vegas. So, uh, you know, Connor Fields was drafted. He was the band's player drafted, and they ended up flipping him right away to Rochester for a handful of future picks. Um, And in return, they get Charlie Bertrand, um, back and then Riley Hutchcraft, who they also drafted from Toronto, is going to Rochester as well. So very, very interesting um, to see that those guys uh, get drafted and then flipped right, right away. And to see Rochester be the team—he stays in the upstate New York area, but uh, as a member of the Rochester Nighthawks—and I think that's a big gift for him, uh, for them, um, and big for him too, to stay up in upstate New York. But um, they added another star to this young team that showed some, some bright spots. And I think they're a team that's going to really surprise some people next year. Um, You know, they played obviously in the tough East, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how they take that next step uh, next year for sure. Um, But in terms of the people that were added to this expansion team, uh, we'll go down the list just to, to give you guys an idea if you were not able to see um, initially, but Jackson Nishimura was taken Connor Fields was obviously taken by the Bandit, but he was flipped to get Charlie Bertrand. Um, they also took Riley Hutchcraft from the Toronto Rock. He was also flipped to Rochester. Landon Kells, only goalie that was drafted and kept. Uh, two other goalies were taken. We mentioned Hutchcraft and also Frank Ciliano, Uh but Frank Ciliano was flipped back to the Seals for some picks, and those picks were Mark Lassini and Brendan Cleland. So they get two pieces for Ciliano, who we expected – to uh, you know return to the SEALs, whether it was via, you know, draft and trade like this or just, you know, returning, getting passed on, but they decided to, to draft him and then flip him for some assets. Uh Brett McIntyre got picked, uh, but they would trade him back in return, get Sam Firth, uh, as well as Eric Turner. Connor Kurse was the guy taken from the swarm. A lot of different options they had with the swarm. Kurse ends up being the guy, obviously played really, really well in season one and been playing well uh, for the Whip Snakes as well in the field game. James Barclay surprisingly goes uh, for the Halifax Thunderbirds. Ty Thompson was drafted from the Riptide. Jack Hanna, who hasn't even suited up for Panther City yet, was taken. Uh, Jackson Subok from the Wings. John Wagner from Rochester. Uh, Tyson Rowe from Vancouver. And then finally, Jeff Cornwall from Saskatchewan Rush. I thought that was a big pickup for them uh, if they would kept him. They actually flip him, though, to Calgary in return to get Marshall King. So uh, I think Marshall King's a, a good piece for them to build. Interesting enough that uh, Calgary was able to do that. Definitely, you know, see that they were probably looking to shore up some side on the defensive side a little bit. And I uh, saw that Cornwall would be a, a good move and uh, probably had that deal in place, you know, leading up to the expansion draft. But that was one that I, I thought uh, is going to be very interesting to see how it plays out next season. But uh, that was your expansion draft. I'll go with you, Brian. Thoughts on this expansion draft and uh, some of the guys that were taken, uh, any of that stand out to
0: you? Yeah, I feel very similar overall to uh, how you explained how you felt, where they did a really good job at maximizing the return from the draft. When, uh, after looking at the results, I, I actually went back and looked at Panther City's expansion draft from last year and the results just to see how much they moved. Because I, rem- I didn't remember that draft necessarily being as exciting or complex. And it, and it really wasn't. They, they did make a move, uh, against the mammoth, where they traded back one of their players, they left unprotected for two guys, so uh that happened to the mammoths uh twice in a row in two uh consecutive expansion drafts uh but they did a really good job at also picking up future capital without sacrificing a lot of future capital and I really like your point about uh mainly focusing on youth because I think that kind of uh was a perspective that I wasn't really thinking about going into the drafts for for like uniformly drafting youth. And for that reason, a lot of picks were really surprising to me. Like no Dawson Thee from Halifax, um Subak as opposed to Kreppenseck or Isaiah Davis Allen from the Wings, uh Curse over Walker from the Swarm, Ty Thompson from the Riptide instead of McCardle or or uh, uh Dan Lomas. Uh Landon Kells is one of the younger goalies that was available. So I think uh Their strategy in retrospect was really clear. They're focused on a young core of capable guys. Uh, Very excited to see Jack Hanna suit up, by the way. Uh, Young, capable guys, and I think they're going to try to build on top of that from uh, draft, from from the entry draft, and uh, kind of go for a long-term plan instead of, uh, hey, let's make waves in the first season potentially, even though they might still do that too.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, like you said, I'm really excited to see Jack Hanna. You know, some American talent, young American talent we saw, um, you know, with Kirst and Bertrand both having great rookie seasons. Um, You know, that that stuff I feel like you wouldn't have saw maybe a couple years ago in expansion drafts where, um, you know, some of these young American talents that don't have that much box experience um, end up getting drafted. Now, Jack Hanna has actually had box experience um, playing in the Collegiate Box Association or Box League um for a couple of years so it's not like he's completely green like Connor Kurse was but Hurst and bertrand were both you know new to the box game and have really excelled um you know both field and box so nice to see them you know get out of his pieces but like you said yeah i think it's the way to do it um obviously we saw it work really well with panther city um they had maybe a few more veterans than uh this group but um you know we got free agency coming up august 1st so no stopping uh Sean Williams from going out and getting some big names in free agency. I feel like we're going to see one or two um, as well. So we'll definitely uh, be monitoring that. Um, I know you kind of saw youth as a big movement as well, Topher. Final thoughts kind of on the NLL expansion draft from your perspective.
1: Yeah, just to wrap it up, same thing you guys have been saying. This this definitely was not an expansion draft necessarily designed to win this first season and make a title chase this season, at least not in this phase of roster building they targeted guys who are going to probably be a part of this group for the next you know five six years that's probably their intention with some of these dudes you know like jack Hanna, like bertrand you know these are guys that aren't here just to try and win in the next three seasons these are long-term pieces to kind of set up a foundation for the vegas franchise so that they have some something to build upon in this next era of the national lacrosse league
2: no, absolutely, and we're certainly looking forward uh, to see them take the floor. You know this uh, this winter. Um, you know as long, as long as everything goes according to plan, and free agency is right around the corner, guys. So that's definitely going to be something. We saw a crazy free agency last year. Um, you know, especially given the fact that there was a uh one year hiatus essentially. But uh, I'm sure we're going to see some other shakeups come this off season as well. Now let's move on to PLL week five. You know, we're a week removed, but um, we're going to recap that a little bit because we had a lot of happen. Uh, We had one of, I think, the best games of the year in the Chrome versus Atlas, and that was essentially for top spot in the league. Um, Atlas ended up prevailing. But we'll start off with Archers-Redwoods, the first game of PLL week five. Um, A close one. You know, I think we kind of all expected it to be a little bit close. Um, we thought the Redwoods would have a chance just given the fact that they would have an advantage at the stripe, but uh, this one really came down to the wire. I'll start off with you, Brian thoughts on the archers, Redwoods, uh, archers get the win, but only by a goal. Um, again, faceoffs continue to be one of their Achilles heels, despite, you know, being one of the most efficient offenses, but uh, thoughts on this game.
0: Happy to see Kelly get the nod and, and perform well. I mean, we were talking about it leading up to that game that we would all thought collectively that Kelly deserved the start for a week to see what he could do, even though his first start in week one, the second half of week one, uh, didn't go exactly as he probably hoped it did. So good to see him bounce back. Bounce back. They were at a make or break point at that position for the season. Uh, the change had to be made because they needed some momentum somewhere. And I think that being the first game really that I can think of where they had over 50% save percentage uh, really shows how – much goalie play really affects it uh, and makes the defense look better for the first three weeks or so. We were talking about how the Redwoods defense doesn't really look up to, you know, up to snuff, but really when your goalie's only saving 30% of the shots, it's really hard to say that your defense is playing well, regardless of how well they actually are playing. Cause on paper, it looks really, really bad. So holding a team like the archers who look great, even without a still, uh, you know, to 10 goals is, is definitely impressive. And it, it does show the importance of, of having a good goalie. I mean, the chaos are also an argument for that. Uh, but if they continue to hold teams to 11, 12 goals, like they have been, even with Troutner's, you know, subpar performance uh, their offense is really only scoring nine goals a game. And if you don't account for the three goal game against the Chrome, their, their goals average is still 10 and a half, which is just not high enough to win in this league. And when you look at their offensive personnel and their production, they only have three guys with ten or more points, and the third uh, highest scorer on the team is Miles Jones, whose production has drastically decreased from last year to this year, when he was a, you know, a, one of the runners up for MVP, or at least very everyone was very vocal about him being in the conversation. And so that's a place where they really need to figure it out, where they need they need some depth to step up to help contribute more to the success of the team, because if they can't. Consistently score above 10 goals, there's no way to succeed in this league.
2: And what are your thoughts, Topher, uh, on Archers, Redwoods, Um, you know, either team and how they, uh, they turned out in week five?
1: Yeah, just, you know, one more thing on the Redwoods side of that. I think they've looked more like the Redwoods over the past couple of games. You know, the defense is active and forcing turnovers. You know, you mentioned Jack Kelly finally provided – functional goalie play let alone good goalie play just someone who is a functional shot stopper right now but what they're missing is that that you know third star you know just another guy who can do something on offense and that's definitely where one of the Notre Dame attackmen has to do something you know Matt Cavanaugh has had a really really tough start to the season first half of the season he's been pretty invisible most of the year he he's one of the top players on the team he has to deliver and if it's not him, that's got to be Ryder Garnsey doing something, either replacing Kavanaugh in the starting lineup, or doing something for midfield, or playing, you know, as the third attacker and whatever. One of those guys has to start performing up to their talent level, and then the Redwoods will score enough and have enough offensive cohesion and effectiveness to take advantage of their improved defensive play. And then on the Archer side, you know, you mentioned this offense is still able to produce at a really high level in spite of Grant Amet's injury for the entire first half of the season. You know, he's the anchor of their attack line and kind of the the catalyst of their offense opposite Tom Tom Schreiber. But you know they have they've looked fine. They've looked perfectly fine. Yeah, if you told me they were missing the best attackman in the league, I wouldn't believe you. Because they're just still so fluid. And Connor Day Simone, who's played in that role, deserves a lot of credit, not for replicating his production, but for finding his role within the team just as a tertiary option to allow the guys who are the big playmakers, like Schreiber, like Matt Moore now, and then both Holman and Manny to just do what they do best. And, you know, one more thing on this offense, um, last week was Marcus Holman's best game of the season by a lot. You know, he was big on social media because of the, the celebration that kind of went pseudo-viral on the cross Twitter, but, you know, he was more effective than he had been all season and he's had actually a pretty decent season, but him on the right was a terror. You still have Manny who had his, one of his quietest games and he still had three points. So when they're humming like they have been, they're effective. And you know, this game could have been worse if Jack Kelly had only been down at 30%. This, This is still a very good offense and it continues to be the most, I'd say probably the most fun unit to watch offensively. Consistently, just because the way they move the ball with and without their best players is is pretty impressive.
2: Yeah, I I, I love this archers team. Um, you know, if if the faceoffs weren't such a big Achilles heel, I think they're the top team in the league right now. And uh, I actually have you know faith in Justin Nacio to you know maybe actually put it together. It, it, he was put in a tough position. You know, any young faceoff guy coming in this league as a rookie, it's always going to be at a disadvantage because the rules are so different. You know, they move in the wings. Um, so, you know, these long poles are right on top of you. The wing players are right on top of you. Um, and he's at, seemed to improve each week, even going seven for 18. Um, he went against TD Erland, who obviously hasn't had the best season so far. But um, I think, you know, this team has proven that, you know, they're just a good face-off game away from Anasio from really beating up on teams. And we even saw that they beat up on the Cannons despite losing the face-off battle. So, uh, I'm still really high on this uh, archer's team, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up Marcus Holman because he's still performing at a high level. And um, he kind of struggled, you know, a little bit last year and in, in 2020 as well. And uh, he's kind of looking like his old self. And uh, we don't know how many more years he has, just because of the offensive weapons on the archers. But uh, he's proven that he still deserves to be a, a top spot in that lineup every week. Um, you know, six points in this game, four goals. Um, one was a two-pointer. That right at half, that was just an absolute rocket. Um, And like you mentioned, Will Manny and him just continue to just be two of the best shooters in the league. Uh, It's I really think it's those two, and and Ryan Brown is the top shooters in the the PLL, Um, and they continue to do it week in and week out. And uh, Marcus Holman does it in a variety of different ways. You know, Will Manny can score in a variety of different ways too, but we we know he's a little bit closer to that lefty ten yards out type of shooter where Marcus Holman's doing it right side, left side, middle of the field, you know, kind of all over. Um, but I did see some some positives from the Redwoods. I think Charlie Bertrand's been looking a lot uh, like looking like a real key piece to this offense. Um, and, you know, you look at Rob Pennell had four assists. Um, he made the defenses respect him a little bit more this game. Um, and I think that's big for kind of unlocking this offense. But, yeah, like you said, still too quiet from Kavanaugh, um, as well as Sergio Perkovic. 0 for 7 shooting. I mean, he's got to get involved more. Um, to see him just kind of really, really not perform at all so far. He, he only has one goal. Uh, or sorry, he only has a he has a, a two point goal and a one point goal. So he only has three points um, off of you know those two two goals essentially because one was a two pointer. Um, that's not enough. You know they need to get him involved more, um, and he needs to shoot better. So. Um, definitely some some woes that they got to work out, um, but is positive seeing Jack Kelly. I, I'm glad we saw him start. I think he needs to be the starter going forward until you see anything change. Troutner could still be the guy of the future, but I think it's a kind of a whoopsnake situation of last year where you know you've given Troutner enough of a leash now. Time to go ride with Kelly, get kind of like in it with Phipps. So um, certainly I think that's the way to go. But we'll move on to Chrome Atlas, um, and I'll go with Uto for. Thoughts on this game uh, with the Atlas and the Chrome Um, and what was a a real barn burner late in the
1: game? Yeah, this was a real heavyweight matchup even before the game. Like I think these are the top two teams probably in the league uh, heading in, heading into the game. And it it all started at the faceoff stripe with the, with the big highlighted headliner matchup that the league is still pushing as the headliner matchup as the two all-star captains uh, with Baptiste and Farrell. And, You know, focusing just on that matchup, I think we can definitively say with not a single person questioning it, Trevor Baptiste is the best faceoff guy in the world by several, like a whole order of magnitude difference. Because while he was healthy before he got the lower body injury at the end of the game, I think he was like 70, 80% against Farrell, who was coming into the game easily the second best percentage-wise in the league. So he's just such a monster, and if he's healthy the back half of the season, he's probably the MVP of the league. But really, that whole game was... I I don't know. It was just a really fun lacrosse game. The Chrome are a really fun team this year. Uh, They have a lot of grit. I think they're probably the grittiest team in the league, which isn't surprising given it's a Tim Sudan team and they still have that Rochester Rattlers energy, even as a lot of those guys have moved on from pro lacrosse. And, you know, they fought hard, and the Atlas are just probably the best team in the league right now and they showed it by holding on for that victory
2: yeah this was a phenomenal game and you know you never just knowing what the chrome were able to do through four weeks never felt like they were out of it even when they were down 11-6 at halftime um you know i i kind of you know just felt like i'm like this chrome team is going to come out strong sure enough they, they make it a game and uh it was back and forth throughout that third and fourth quarter um after they went on that run to kind of tie it up and then um, you know, this Atlas team, though, this offense finally got going again, which was nice to see against uh, a capable defense like the Chrome because we saw them go up against two pretty weaker defenses in week one and two, light them up, and then week three and four, struggle. Um, so they looked much better this week. Um, you know, I still think the Chrome defense is in great great shape, despite, you know, letting up those many goals against this Atlas team. You know, it's tough to do when you're playing Chris Gray, Jeff T, and Eric Law. three of the best you know attackmen in the league right now so um certainly thought they did a a good job kind of keeping them in check as much as you could um but nice to see the atlas uh offense again kind of get going and uh jeff teat deliver um another good game um i thought he played well in week four as well really week three was the only game that um really left a lot to be desired but
0: what about your atlas brian What, what do you think about this game Totally agree with Topher about everything he said about the faceoff and I'll round back to the faceoff at the end of my little weekly diatribe about the Atlas. Uh, you mentioned the, um, the fact that the offense felt really alive again and I agree with you. And I think a lot of it had to do with uh, the different style of the Chrome defense relative to that of the archers defense, where I brought up after they played the archers and we were going into the the Chrome matchup uh, that the archers were just firing immediately As uh, they were sliding immediately to disrupt the initiator of the dodge, and the Atlas midfield particularly were not handling that very well. They were retreating from the slide as opposed to re-dodging or finding an open man or moving the ball or something. It really slowed the offense down. They had like 10 goals that game. Chrome has been a slower-to-go team, uh, and because of that, I think that allowed the Atlas to – be more comfortable dodging, know that they were going to have space, be able to keep their head up, and the Chrome weren't doing as much to disrupt that flow of the Atlas offense. And I think that's a really different, uh, uh, important comparison. And I think going forward, if if teams play more of a Chrome style against the Atlas, I think they're going to struggle and they're going to allow the Atlas midfield to contribute a little bit more. And we saw a little bit more midfield contribution from the Atlas. Uh, Costabile got a little bit involved. Caraway had a goal. Uh, but the, the midfield still needs to get more involved. Crawley and Aiken um, were both notably pointless. So their production is really driven from, from their attack. But if, if teams can really wipe out the contributions from the midfield for the Atlas, the offense really stalls. And we saw that again in the second half. And I think a lot of that had to do with the second half against the Chrome. I think a lot of that had to do with the lack of possessions. So when they got it to the other end of the field, I think the Atlas were just a little tired because they were playing a lot of defense, but we saw when you limit their possessions and you force the Atlas to slow down, that's what functionally allowed the Chrome to catch back up to them. So I think teams keys to success against my Atlas is free coaching advice, I guess, is really disrupt their dodge, their initiator's, through early slides rather than slow to go, and by doing so, you can generate more cost turnovers, which you need if you're losing at the faceoff stripe. Can uh, if Baptiste, who if he continues on this campaign, he I think he's the MVP, um, because once the archer's midfield gets involved, their offense is too diverse to stop. Uh, and if they're not, and if and if the Atlas can keep the ball because of Trevor Baptiste, and their defense keeps playing at the level that they're playing at, I don't I don't see a team. That will really beat them in a deep playoff run, except maybe the Whip Snakes.
2: Yeah, no, I think they're still in my mind uh, one of the top teams. I will say though, you know, with Baptiste injuring his hamstring, uh, you know, luckily he'll have three weeks. I'd be shocked if he plays in the All Star game. um, Although he is a captain, but um, he'll have three weeks to rest that up, and hopefully he'll be good to go. But let's say he's not one hundred percent. Um, does that kind of diminish your guys' thoughts on the Atlas at all? Or do you think they're still in good shape, You know, kind of like the, the Archers in a way, where Archers obviously have a disadvantage at face-off, but we still consider them one of the top teams. Um, does that kind of change your opinion? Because we have said that Trevor Baptiste has essentially been the MVP. I think we're all kind of in agreement of that so far this season. Um, there's a few other candidates up there as well, but he's been the most valuable player. If he can't go you know, for a, a game or two. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Atlas then?
0: Um, I'll go back to you through I do think, th- I think it complicates it a little bit. I think the most complicated part of it is the Atlas aren't really a team that have a got a poll, for example, that they could send up with a lot of experience at the stripe to kind of try to shut down, like Farrell, for example, and stop teams from getting transition. Off of the face-off, which I think would be paramount for them being able to stay in games, because once once the face-off equalized in the Chrome's direction, which was the one of their like keys to success, if Farrell could equalize at the stripe, the Chrome could stay in the game essentially, and that's what we saw happen. Once he equalized, they caught back up. If is out of the lineup and they and they're not they, they aren't having success um, at the stripe, I don't think they have like a disruptor guy like a Messenger or a CJ Costabile to go out there and really shut down or really limit the effectiveness of a Farrell or a Nardella, or if Erlen really, you know, gets hot in the second half of the season, those people are, those teams are going to be uh, really tough for the Atlas to keep up with on from an offensive pace.
2: No, I, I agree. You know, I definitely would be, uh, you know, have some concern. Um, although I do think this offense can still perform. You just, you lose some of that those possession advantages, you know, that they had, um, that's essentially why they beat the archers um, might be a different story. If the archers would have won a few more face-offs uh, thoughts for you, for, you know, if Baptiste isn't completely healthy um, when they come back after the all-star break, um, do you still feel very strongly about this Atlas team? Um, or does it kind of make another team kind of uh, more a favorite in your eyes?
1: Yeah. Kind of to use the archers comparison, for example, you know, they don't have a good, a super effective face-off strategy and they don't typically win close to 50% more often than not, but they very rarely give up that quick transition that Brian was talking about. And that's because they have the polls to kind of muck it up either from the wing or at the stripe. And that's where Graham Hossick and Jared Connors and Scott Ratliff are so valuable for them in between the lines is that face off? How they can just muck it up and prevent any real transition opportunities. So that's what the fear is with Atlas because they don't have that guy. They have I, I, they have FOP, I believe, right from Syracuse as their backup. Yeah, so maybe he's good. We don't know. We haven't seen him play in the PLL yet. He was pretty decent uh, in the ACC this past season. So maybe they could still, you know, fare pretty well the way uh, Zach Tucci has for the Water Dogs without Jake Withers. So if he's like that 45, 40% range and he's just not, as long as he's not getting smoked, I think they'd be fine. But I do worry a little bit that they can give up that easy transition, those quick two for ones that you get without a Graham Hasek at the stripe, just kind of limiting any chance of transition.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. And, uh, you know, I will say uh, CVR Cade Van Rapport's had a hell of a game uh, this game as well as Craig Chick. So um, it is nice that they have those two poles that it, ha- it does if Baptiste isn't ready to go, um, and they do have to turn to you know, maybe fop to um, face off. They at least have those two guys that can run at the wings if needed um and give them a much better chance of at least mucking it up. Um, but yeah, definitely concerned a little bit, um, but nice to see Trevor fight through um that injury. Um, you know, you never want players to get injured worse fighting through injury, but clearly, you know, he kept it going, and that was kind of the difference maker in the game for them to to win, even if he did start to falter a little bit down the stretch. So um, I can't wait for a rematch of this game. Um, You know, we're going to have to wait a little bit for a while. That could be the championship game, though, essentially, the way um, those teams turned out. Um, We'll have to wait until August 6th. See, uh, or not even August sixth. I'm sorry. We'll have to wait till the potential playoff matchup between these two teams to see them face again. So, at um, this point, that we'll have to wait a little while, um, if at all, um, to see these two teams play again. But um, certainly, round one did not disappoint. Um, and we'll move on now to the second day of the weekend, and uh, we'll talk about um, water dogs. Oh, sorry. We'll talk about water dogs, whip next. But um, we'll talk about chaos cannons. Chaos get their first win. This really felt like a must win for both teams um but especially the Chaos who could have gone down 05 had they not won this game um so uh I'll go to you Brian with this one thoughts on the Chaos Brian now a tight win uh, ended up winning 13-11 against the Cannons had the lead for most of the game um but a lot of it had to do with Trevor uh had to do with Blaze Reardon delivering an absolute gem in net he had 20 plus he had 21 saves i think in this one um that was his fourth 20 plus save game uh, in the past three years and no other goalie had had more than two. So he continues to just be the life for this defense um, with thoughts on this chaos team.
0: Yeah. We're just going to echo. I think that if blaze is going to need to make 20 saves against this cannons team to win, it's not really indicative of future success we're always also talking about the chaos. So I feel like I never want to talk about the chaos because then they're going to get to the playoffs in the last spot and then make me really angry for the whole playoffs. So Blaze is still Blaze, um, but they need to figure out something different if they want to make the playoffs. Because if they keep playing this way and the Cannons kind of figure some stuff out, then I think the Chaos are looking like they're going to compete against the Redwoods for the final spot of the playoffs. And uh, – who knows what happens there but from the canons' perspective i think it's i think it's a real shame that the canons kind of have it figured out at the stripe a little bit because that was one of their major weaknesses last year and they kind of don't really have it put together elsewhere and i think that's a lot of why they're struggling in particular in uh transition defense which was also one of their big weaknesses last year um we saw Morocco bail them out a lot of times this year and last year, but if they let up a lot of transition in games, teams kind of run up the score on them against the chaos. They let up, uh, you know, five goals from defensive players, uh, Rowlett, Jerry Raganese, best post game or best post goal interview I've ever seen in my whole life. I, that guy's hilarious. Uh, but Rowlett, Ragonese, Costabile, and Patrick Resch. Those are just four goals from pretty defensive guys that definitely came in transition. Um, let alone any offensive players that scored off of fast breaks or whatever. So that's something that they still really need to figure out. And I feel like they're just consistently not making adjustments to account for this major weakness of theirs. And if Morocco is not having a, you know, a 65% save percentage day, I, I don't see the formula for them to win, particularly against more high octane teams, dare I say, NASCAR offenses like the Atlas or the Chrome, you know what I mean? It's, the problems aren't going away, and I feel really bad because Stephen Kelly's really having a good year, and I hope that the Cannons really capitalize off of it because it was one of their bigger pickups in the off season.
2: Yeah, I, I think you really hit the nail on the head, especially with this defense not, um, you know, playing to the level that it needs to. Um, and obviously, they've been kind of rotating a bunch of guys in through. We, we've seen Brody Merrill in and out of the lineup, um, but like you said. Kind of two sides of the same coin with the chaos cannons. Um, cannons are a team too that have relied heavily on Nick Morocco, and he's kind of put up blaze esque performances. He had a 19 save uh, game earlier this year, and uh, if he's not doing that, they're going to struggle. You know, he's kind of keeping them alive. And I, I agree with Stephen Kelly. You know, he had another point in this one, 12 for 20 at the stripe. Um, you know, he has done what he needed to do for this team, but they're just not getting consistent offensive production. Um, and uh, despite you know, adding, I, I feel like the, the weird thing about the Cannons is to me, they look like potentially the worst team in the league at some stretches, but they do seem like they're getting better for the most part. Not miss, necessarily on the defensive end, but they're starting to put it together a little bit, I guess, with the offense. I don't know, they're picking up some guys. You know, the pick up Donville, was a big pickup. Bubba Fairman's playing well for them, Asher Nolting's been looking good. So, I think the future's kind of bright for the Cannons. I just don't know if they have enough to kind of hang in these games. It's almost like they're that they have a lot of young players that look promising, but the veteran edge that some of these other teams have like the Archers just isn't there for them. Um, you know, you can't really quantify that, but it just that's kind of a testament to why they've been losing a lot of these close games. With the exception of the Archers game where they got blown out, um they've lost a lot of close games where they've even had the lead going into um you know second half or uh you know late games and kind of relinquish that um this was a little bit of a different story but they they had a good shot at beating this chaos team and kind of let them uh you know just kind of just never went out and seized the game like you wanted them to and uh lyle's continuing to you know play as good as he has been but um kind of still missing that edge factor it's almost like a lot of the offense still is just watching Lyle try to go out there and, uh, and you know, score. Uh, whereas I, w- I want to see them get more involved in the two-man game. And I think it's tough to do that with lack of chemistry. They've had Cheryl Embiid in and out of the lineup. They've had, uh, obviously, added Donville. Um, even though Bomberry was, you know, in the lineup a little bit. Shane Jackson was in the lineup. So I feel like Coach Cork is doing a good job of trying to get a bunch of different guys experience. And that will pay off long-term. But now we're already at week six. We're at the all-star break. It's tough to do in this league. Like, you know, that kind of could work in the MLL when you had a little bit more games um, to kind of get people, you know, some more chemistry. But now you're one in four. Um, you know, the lineup that they have now, I think, has to be the one that they stick with. Because if you keep trying to recycle people in and out, you're just you're just hurting yourself long term. So I don't know long winded way of saying that I'm not too high on the cannons. But I don't know, Topher, Did you see any positives from the Canons? And despite the cast winning, um, do you think they can kind of make a run or was it kind of just two bad teams duking it out for a win?
1: Yeah, first uh, to kind of close the book on the, the Canons part of this, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I see it with their offense improving. Um, you know, Ryan Drenner's consistently one of the sneaky, most solid point producers in the league. You know he never gets much uh, love outside of like his tilt and his hair, but <laughs> his actual production is always really solid, even if he doesn't get much plotted for it. Um, Charwin Beedies has been decent um, on the left side. You know, you mentioned Nolting's good, Lyle's good, so I kind of like the offense figuring out. But like Brian, you said, this defense, especially in transition, is is it's rough, and I don't really know how they can fix it, especially soon i don't i don't know double pull every face off just in case um play bubba fairman as an offensive midfielder just to stop transition that's an idea maybe i don't know how they fix it but they need to fix it otherwise like they are the clear favorite to miss the playoff in my opinion i
0: agree i don't know how you fix it especially just because we're in a league that doesn't really they don't practice all week they have one practice before you go into a weekend transition defense is is you know 99 percent communication base and how do you prove communication when you're not surrounded by those guys frequently enough to you know gain that chemistry you know just playing in games you can get like in a little bit of an offensive group but if that communication isn't there on that transition defense or that decision making isn't drilled into your brain through habitual practice it's really hard to improve upon and like Hutton was saying constantly changing the lineup is only going to hurt any kind of chemistry that you build so I just thought that was a good point that I wanted to expand upon
1: Absolutely. Um, and to try and, you know, get onto the chaos side of things real quick. Uh, I think this is the first time that we've seen the chaos be the chaos. Obviously, all the Bandits guys missed the first uh, three, four games of the season. And I think last week was the first time where they all looked like themselves on the field again. You know, Josh Byrne had four points. Dane Smith still did his thing. Cloutier was back um, from a brief little injury. So I think they looked like the chaos, the same team that made the final in Utah, the same team that won the championship last year. They looked like that group, even if they still have some rough edges. You know, they met, you mentioned how the defense gave up a lot of shots, which they always seem to do. Um, but they definitely showed, again, the same exact formula and the same bones that led them to success the past few seasons, and which is kind of what we expected, you know, with all those guys missing time for the NLL Finals
2: yeah I agree, and you know I'm still haven't been completely impressed with the cast, but that's I guess more with their defense. I really think they're missing Johnny Cdick's presence, you know obviously they had Kennedy on um, this off season and Zach Getty's you know at stick defensive midi, but um, without Johnny Cdick, you know it's tough for them to play this style of you know one on one when your one on one matchups don't slide uh left plays, you know do the rest, and uh they're getting burned a lot on that, so um, I, I struggle to see this team going far just because of their issues on defense. But if this offense starts to put up points like we know they can, you know, with all these pieces coming back, Luce came back, Kyle Jackson's looked great. Um, crazy to see that we saw Challen Rogers assist Kyle Jackson against the Cannons when those two players helped the Cannons win the final MLO championship. So I thought that was kind of funny, ironic to see. You would have kind of scratched your head if you heard that two years ago. But um, they have a really good... They have a lot of good pieces all across the board. And when they get Adler back, if he's 100%, I think this chaos team could be scary to face um, just because this offense can hang with any other offense, in my opinion. But the defense is still going to be their Achilles heel. And as we mentioned with the Cannons, if you want to win in this league, you have to have a strong defense. And you can't completely rely on your goalie because if they pitch one bad game, you're done. And lucky for the chaos last year, Blaze was on point every single game for the most part. I, you know, he. I don't think he had a bad game at all last year, and he hasn't really had a bad game this year either, but, um, you know, all it takes is a uh, one-quarter collapse, and, uh, you know, if you're facing a team like the Atlas or the Chrome, um, that's the difference between winning and losing. So I'm curious to see how this Chaos team does against an Atlas or a Chrome, um, just because they haven't played those two teams yet. And uh, I think those are going to be true tests of this team because they look decent against the archers but um then again they had a couple of two-pointers that kind of made that game closer than it actually was so uh it'll be interesting to see how this fully back now chaos team does in the second half of the season but uh we we're running a little bit long so let's definitely move forward to the last game of the weekend probably the most exciting one in addition to the atlas chrome and that was the water dogs whip snakes uh, i think we we're all kind of feeling like it was time for the water dogs to step up and they certainly did in a, a tight game. Um, but it was definitely close throughout. But uh, Brian thoughts on the water dogs getting uh, the big win over the whip snakes and handed them their first loss of the season.
0: I don't, I don't have a lot of thoughts on this game. I, I think really it was about time. The way snakes, the whip snakes kind of tripped over themselves a little, they came out really slow on offense. And that's kind of been my critique of them this whole year so far. Uh, you know, it's classic whip snakes always winning by one goal or whatever, but like, In previous years, it's like the parity of the league was really high. Every game was really close. We haven't seen a lot of blowouts since, like, really 2019. This year, teams are losing by six and seven, and the Whipsnakes are kind of still winning by one. So if they keep winning – I know they didn't win this week, but if they keep winning by one, they keep winning by one. That's great for them. But you can only win so many one-goal games in a row. We said that about the Wings all during the NLL season. Uh, So I don't know if I'm really, like, that impressed with this win by the Waterdogs because – when you hold the whip snakes scoreless in the first quarter, like yeah, Ward played phenomenally and their defense is kind of figuring it out. Um, and DeLuca had a good week prior as well. So like the defense is a whole unit, not just goalie wise, is is kind of figuring it out. Um, but they didn't like really outproduce the whip snakes on offense except for the first quarter. Uh so I feel like if the whip snakes just kind of went into that game a little bit more awake, they might have taken it away themselves. So I, I think this was just like a or maybe even like a trap game for the Whip Snakes. I don't really have a lot of thoughts. I, I'm not fully convinced on the Water Dogs yet. I'm still very much on this. Like there are four teams that are like really pulling away from the pack, including the Whip snakes still. And there are four teams that are kind of sitting at the bottom and still trying to figure a lot of stuff out. I just think the Water Dogs kind of squeaked by with one this week.
2: Yeah, I, I do agree with you. I think the Water Dogs are still maybe not there yet. But what I saw from this team is I, I think they can be a contender. Um, given the fact that they put up a good game against the Whip Snakes. Haven't been I haven't completely been super impressed with the Whip Snakes either, but um they do have the pieces and if Tucci can continue to play well at the face-off stripe and give them a shot, this offense can be one of the best in the league. you have Kieran McArdle and Michael Sowers, both top ten in points um so far. You know, we'll get to all star snubs. Kieran McCardo should be an all-star in my opinion. Maybe not a starter, but definitely a reservist. Um but um you know, this defense finally put together, I think, a complete game, both on the short-stick defensive mini side. Matt Witchers looked great. I know Joe Keegan's talked at length about how well he's been playing. Um, Higgins is doing well for them. You know, the, the Napoli issue of him being out of the lineup has kind of solved itself with these two young guys playing so well. And, you know, obviously they have three of the top poles in the league in Gobrecht, uh, Ben Randall, and Liam Burns. So nice to see you know, them kind of put together another complete game against a whip snakes offense that does have a lot of uh firepower, but I think what I was most impressed of about the Water Dogs is their ability to kind of just finish a game out and play four quarters because I didn't think even when they kind of the Whip snakes went on that run, I didn't think the Water Dogs played poorly at all. I think the Whip Snakes just were able to make some plays. And I think that's what's doomed them the you know the first couple weeks of the season was the Water Dogs didn't put together a complete game. Obviously they had some injuries too, but um, I don't know. I've been impressed and I think they're a sneaky team. They could be a dark horse, um, you know, tough to put them ahead of those four other teams we mentioned. But um, in my, my opinion, they're right up there with that. I think it's a top five and a bottom three. You know, you couldn't kind of bring the chaos into that conversation when they're all kind of together. But as of right now, I think Redwood's chaos and uh, cannons are more at the bottom. Um, I don't know. How, how do you feel, Topher? What did you think of the Water Dogs? Was it a, a bigger win for the Water Dogs or was it more of a letdown for the
1: Whip Snakes? I mean, I think there's definitely a little bit of letdown to the Whip Snakes, especially as Brian mentioned, that really slow start at the beginning of this game where they kind of didn't play offense for a quarter. But I, I definitely think, especially if you include the big uh, blowout of the chaos the week before, I think the Water Dogs are kind of figuring out what they are as a team and you know what players go where and, and it's just their general lineups and how they want to play they kind of have things figured out you know you mentioned Witcher and Higgins like that's their main short sticks now they're not trying to rotate a bunch of guys they have their primary guys they know what they're doing they know who they're starting you know offensively they know how to play Sowers and McCardle together and they know you know Ethan Walker is the guy out of the box you know they know who's going where and how they all flow together. So those pieces are all kind of meshing together finally. And then they have Dylan Ward back, who was really great in this game again. So I think they're finally figuring out who they are. And I think this is just the start of another really strong second half of the season, like we saw last year.
2: Yeah, I I agree with that. And, you know, if I'm the Whip Snakes, I'm concerned about, you know, the turnovers. I I guess, too, you got to give them a little bit of a pass, just because that Williams has been out of the lineup, and now inserting him back in. You know, the offense looks... Um, you know, different than it did in the first three weeks, but um, still haven't been impressed the past two weeks with this offense. I mean, they lead the league in turnovers with 94. Um, That's just too many for this offense to to sustain. You know, if they, you're able to squeak out these one-goal wins, great, but um, come playoff time, that's going to come back to bite you. And, you know, they've been heavily reliant on Joe Nardella a lot more than probably we've talked about, and Kyle Burnlor. To me, Kyle Burnlor has been their best player so far, and if he hasn't been playing at the elite level that he had in years one and two of the PLL, um, this team could easily be at 500 or below 500 um, based on how they've been playing, you know, on offense. So um, honestly, I, I feel like I, even though I do think you could put them above the Water Dogs, I think they have more reason to be concerned than the Water Dogs do, in my opinion. Um, you know, it might be a hot take there, but I just think the Water Dogs. Offense has played much better, and I think their defense, although hasn't played great to start the season, is starting to get to form. Where the Whip Snakes offense hasn't looked any better than it did week one, in my opinion. Um, and adding Zed definitely helps, but they really got to figure it out. I think the fact that they didn't trust James Carlson was kind of a head scratcher because, you know, I highlighted that he had had a hat trick in the past three meetings against the Water Dogs, had a sock trick in the last game, you know, earlier this year uh, when they played the Water Dogs. So Kind of interesting to see him left out of lineup against a team that struggles actually to defend on the doorstep. But um, overall, big win for the Water Dogs. and uh, I'm not too worried if I'm the Whip Snakes we're four and one. But I do think they need to take this this break to kind of figure out what they want their personnel to be on offense. I think you know again I like with the Canons time time the experiment is over. You know you run guarding from the box, are you running from attack? You know what what's the plan like is it back to being zed and rambo and then you get guttering maybe on the lefty you know i, I don't know they got to figure it out though um and uh you know maybe you get brian Cole more involved but so far it, it just still hasn't looked too uh too great from the Snakes, and uh you know offensive efficiency wise they're, they're one of the worser ones in the league so far so can't rely on burn again kind of back with the place that you can't continue to rely on your goalie to kind of bail you out of games and uh You know, he's certainly played well through five games so far, but um, all it takes is one letdown. But those are our thoughts on week five. We will do a little brief all-star game preview. Um, Not much to say, you know, it's just a fun game. But did you guys have any snubs? Um, whether it be a guy that you know is a reservist and should've been a starter, or a guy that just completely missed the All-Star game altogether, I'll go with you, Brian. Thoughts on the All-Star game rosters? Uh, maybe give yourself, uh, give everyone, what your roster was, or some top picks from your uh, ballot, and uh, who you like, you know, going to this All-Star game.
0: Uh, yeah, I'll list. My, I can list mine off really quickly. I will preface by saying that I voted after week three, and I didn't recast a ballot to reflect weeks four, and I think voting closed before five. But after week three, this was mine. It was Manny, T. Nick Turn, Schreiber, Henningberg, Anderson, Giles, Harris, Van Rapphorst, Manley, Baptiste, Logan, Costabile, and Kinkannon. Not a lot Not a lot that I would change. There were a couple people that I would change after after weeks four and five, but not too many. Um, from a snub, I, I think the two starters of the All-Star game should be Kincannon and Burnmore. I think they're just playing – better than everyone else on average. I mean, the stat sheet says that too. You, I mean, I know Blaze has, you know, 20-plus saved games, but uh, I don't think he's played as high of a level as those two goalies every week so far. Uh, so I think that I think that's a starter snub for me. Uh, Kincannon not being the starter, I think he's earned it, especially coming back from a really brutal injury. Uh, so I want to give him a shout-out. Other than that, I, I think uh, really – I. I I'll let you – I don't want to steal anybody else's, but my sneaky one that I don't really have that big of a gripe with is, uh, you know, I think Craig Chick is just eternally underrated in this league, and I hope Adam hears me say that. He probably loves how much I'm talking about him this year, Uh, but also Scott Radliff. You have Earhart and Costabile, and Costabile got a lot of votes. I even voted for him. I just said that after week three. He's been playing really good defense. He's been doing a lot of the intangibles really well. He's really stood out in the chaos defense, in my opinion. And then he had that, like, five-point game. And he's been great in transition, aside from that as well, um, and at the stripe when they've needed someone to go up there uh, after a violation or something. So he's kind of been, like, the guy for them. Uh, But uh, Craig Chick and also Scott Radliff have been really keeping up with Michael Earhart, who's, like, the perennial, you know, just automatic every year LSM of the year. Would have loved to see Craig Chick or Scott Radliff get a nod over maybe one of them. I think maybe instead of Earhart for one year, just, you know, to mix it up a little bit. And they both deserve it, too. So that's why I'm bringing them up.
2: Yeah, no, I I do think Craig Chick has really flown under the radar for sure. Um, And, uh, yeah, I don't have too many qualms with it. It's tough to be, you know, too upset about all-star rosters. Um, You know, it's it's supposed to be fun. But like I mentioned, Kieran McArdle not being – on a roster is uh you know, as an all-star is, is kind of a head scratcher, just given how much production he's had so far uh, this year. But my, my roster, I actually, you, you were able to technically vote still in week five. They closed at midnight of the final day and because I'm a psycho. I put in my ballot an hour after the final game. Um, so um, not much changed though, from week four when I originally kind of did a ballot, uh, the person that I did add, to the defensive side was Katie Van Raphorst so after that week five performance. Um, but I had Jeff Teat, Will Manny, Brennan Nick Turn. Probably could have maybe put Wisnowskis, but I feel like Nick Turn has been a little bit more to that offense um, through five weeks. Although Wisnowskis you could easily make a case for him still. Midfield I had Schreiber, Anderson, and Courier. Um, Zach Courier again, you know, not maybe showing up as much on the stat sheet, um, but he does the intangibles. He has more ground balls than some faceoff guys. Um really thinks he should be deserving of being an all-star. So he's maybe a reservist that I think should be a starter, but not too upset about that because he is an all-star. Um, and on defense, I had CVR, Graham Hasek, JT Giles-Harris, face-off Trevor Baptiste. I went Danny Logan for short-stick defensive MIDI. I actually went Costabile for LSM. Between him and Earhart was really tight for me, but Costabile um, I think, has been able to perform all over the field. Both of them have been scoring, so that was kind of a coin flip. But uh, i like to got to give some love to um, cost the there. And then Burnlor was my goalie, but I easily think Jack and Cannon could have been there too. And I agree with you that I think can Cannon deserves to be a starter despite blaze, you know, deserving to be an all-star, just given the way the season's gone so far. Um, those are, have been statistically your top two goalies through five weeks. So um, interesting to see can cannon named a reservist when I think he should be a starter as well. What about you, Topher? What was your all-star roster? Any uh, snubs that you had, uh, whether from the reservist side or altogether?
1: Um, I don't know. I don't really have any um, objections with, you know, the way the roster shook out, either starting lineups or um, otherwise. I think the only guy I listed as a snob, like maybe Asher Nolting, you know, he's had a pretty strong rookie year. Maybe you could throw him a shout. But I didn't think, other than McCardle, which you already mentioned, I didn't think I was, I was too aggrieved that anyone left off. Honestly, I might have... <laughs> picked Joe Nardella to be a starting face guy. Splitting hairs doesn't really matter. You know, it's just an all-star game. So I'll just list out my uh, ballot that I filled out here to close out for the sake of completion here. So Nick Turnteet, Manny, Attack, pretty, pretty uh, fairly unanimous. All of us, I think, had mo- those three guys or at least most of those three guys. Uh, Tom Schreiber. And then I went with uh, Justin Anderson from the Chrome, who's been their lead midfield point scorer. He's been a very valuable asset in providing balance to their offensive unit um and then matt moore who i just love as a 1v1 dodger he's been super uh kind of a supernova addition without grant amen to kind of provide another playmaker a defense mike manley jt giles harris and then matt dunn uh, especially after what he did against atlas also you can never go wrong with matt dunn even if the stats never back him up a uh, danny logan shortstick d middy cj costfield lsm same reasons you guys Listed out, uh, Trevor Baptiste and Kyle Moore, pretty obvious face-off and goalie as well.
2: Yeah, no, I love the Matt Dunn love, and uh, yeah, I, I agree with you on a, a lot of that stuff. Uh, Matt Moore was one that, had he been listed as a midy, he would have made my midfielder, I think. Uh, I don't know. You know, you could play the game and I take off. That's a little bit tougher. Um, honestly, I'd probably drop courier for Matt Moore, just given the production through five weeks, but uh he didn't make my roster because he's listed as attack, and I couldn't put him over the three guys that put in attack. But happy to see him named as an all-star. I think it's well-deserving. Yeah. Um, and looking forward to this all-star game. Uh, Going to be some interesting new rules. You know, I don't know if you guys were able to get in on the NFT that they released, but you got to choose two rules that they could potentially do. Some of them, the last kind of, I think, two minutes of each quarter, goals are worth two points, and two-point goals are worth four points. Another rule, proposed change, is shortening the arc from – 15 or yeah, from 15 yards to 13 yards. I honestly would have liked them to see maybe make the arc uh, kind of less during the high percentage areas. So make it a little bit shorter as you go down um, towards GLE. That would have been my proposal, but that's not one of the proposals. And then the Elam ending is another one that's interesting, where in the fourth quarter they'll add whatever uh, the highest scoring team is through three quarters. Um, they'll play to uh whatever five goals in addition to that score. So if it's a twelve to ten game uh going into the fourth quarter, they'll play to seventeen. So I think that's an interesting one that um I would like to see just see how it plays out. I don't think I'd ever like seeing that actually implemented, but it will be interesting to see. And then one I think they've done in the past where goalies actually initiate um the next possession after a goal uh kind of like the sixes format is another one. So we'll see which uh the two rules are chosen based on the fans. This all star game, but should be a fun one to watch in Boston on ESPN, too, I believe. And the skills competition will be up there as well, um, actually on ESPN. So we get to watch it on ESPN main channel. So definitely looking forward to that. But um, appreciate you guys both hopping on, talking NLL and and a little bit of the professional box across association as well, even though we don't know much of it. Um, and definitely, if you guys tune in a little bit late, we'll have this up on our podcast format. You can also re listen to it on Twitter definitely subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tune in next time to another episode of pro Cross talk.